0: I'm excited to tell you about Goop's partnership with Celebrity Cruises, who made today's episode possible. In last week's newsletter, I got to announce a new experience that we'll be piloting in August. It's called Goop at Sea, and it's a joint venture with Celebrity Cruises. It's been exciting for our team to work with a modern cruise brand that's redefining luxury travel. Together, we came up with something that I think is wholly unique in the travel space. The experience is part of an 11-day European cruise on the Celebrity Apex, which debuts in April. This ship travels from Spain to France to the Italian Riviera. I'll come on board the cruise with my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to host a conversation about personal and collective wellness journeys. And a few very talented practitioners will lead guests through workshops for the mind, body, and soul. To learn more about Celebrity Cruises and the Goop at Sea experience, head to CelebrityCruises.com slash Goop at Sea.
1: When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? I didn't find the one. I
0: found someone I respected, and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive, on the one hand. And on the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is The Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today we had a very special visitor come to Goop. I got to sit down with Eckhart Tolle, the legendary spirituality teacher and bestselling author of The Power of Now and A New Earth. As you'll hear, I've been following Eckhart's work for a long time, as I'm sure many of you have. Eckhart had a profound transformation in his 20s that changed the course of his life, and that's where our conversation begins today. Eckhart and I talked a lot about where we derive our sense of self from, why identity is so important, and how our relationship to ourselves can become dysfunctional without us realizing it. Eckhart explains how our ego tends to get in our own way and how we can break free of that very human trap. One of the most important spiritual practices, he said, is not to resist your experience of this moment in the present. I think about this a lot. Eckhart teaches that what we resist persists. And today we talked about how we can make space for emotion like sadness or anger that we tend to sublimate. How do we bring awareness to these feelings and then move through them. I think Eckhart's tools are helpful for this on a personal level, but I was really curious to hear how he applied them to parenting and how he suggested contextualizing pain so that our children understand that it's a normal human emotion.
1: Then you begin to relate in other humans more to their being than to their conditioned entity. This means there's an outflow. of love and goodwill towards the other. You feel a connectedness that you didn't feel before. That's where real love comes from. When you I define love as the recognition of the other as ultimately yourself.
0: So let's get to my chat with Eckhart Tolle. It's so funny, I remember, you know, the first time that I read you, I actually listened to you, and I bought like a CD of the book, like a book on, I had it in like a Walkman or something. So that's how long ago oh, oh, um, yes, yes. I came across your work and yeah. it was like a book, like you, you read it and it was like a, like a yes, and yes. there was a workbook and right. so I, I was an early adopter, I think.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Power of Now came out uh, 21 years ago.
0: I always think that there's a moment or a series of circumstances that happen that put somebody on a journey. And there's no way that you could be as wise and integrated and this level of teacher unless you had... Traverse through something, unless you had a hero's journey of your own, right? So can you tell me a little bit about what that might have been?
1: Yes, so it's the power of now contains a kind of the and later the new earth also, the essence of uh, what I rea- realized through and basically my teacher was my own suffering and I spent most of my 20s in a states of anxiety and depression and as I described in the power of now at the beginning in the introduction when I was 29 I experienced a sudden shift just because I couldn't stand myself anymore <laughs> and in fact as I say in the introduction to the power of now the, the sentence that came into my head that triggered the shift was I can't live with myself any longer. And then I looked at that sentence that came into my head. It repeated itself in my head in the night, in the middle of the night. I was thinking, I can't stand this anymore. I can't live with myself. And that one, I became aware of this, the strangeness of that, that phrase, because there must be two of me. If I cannot live with myself, who am I? And who is the self that I cannot live with? And that brought about a disidentification. I, I didn't understand it at that time wouldn't have been able to explain it in the way I explain it now, but it brought about a disidentification in my consciousness between the stream of thinking and what I could describe as the dimension of presence or awareness, consciousness in its pure, non-conditioned form, whereas all thinking is, of course, also consciousness, but it's the conditioned consciousness, conditioned through environmental influences, your culture, your personal experiences. So there was a whole, there was an incessant and compulsive, most people have it, an incessant and compulsive stream of thinking in my mind always up to that point. And I was completely identified with it. So I derived my sense of identity, my sense of self, my sense of I, from an unhappy narrative in my mind, it was always concerned about it. It regretted things from the past, it was continuously projecting itself forward into the future, and of course, the future is always uncertain. Am I going to make it, and so on. So, anxiety arises the more you are focused on future in your thinking, I'm not talking about practical future, but the psychological future. And so, I was in these continuous states of anxiety, because I was completely identified with the, one could say, the narrative of me in my head. And so this is what I derived my unhappy sense of self from. There was a lot of unhappy self-talk about, many people have that, I'm now this, this has become part of my teaching, but I had to go through it myself, otherwise I could not teach it. Right. So to realize that, ultimately, And this is a universal truth. Ultimately, the greater part of one's unhappiness uh, is not derived from one's circumstances, but the root cause of the greater part of one's unhappiness is derived from an unhappy narrative in one's mind, a story uh, that one is completely identified with. So there's no awareness from where you would be able to Witness what your mind is doing. In the absence of the witness, in the absence of awareness, you're completely trapped in the conditioned voice in the head, I sometimes call it. And there are millions of people still on the planet whose life is made miserable on a daily basis by a very destructive voice in their heads. But they cannot tell the difference between what they what their voice says about the external world and their life circumstances and the actual situation of the external world. So I sometimes tell people next time you become irritated or angry in a a minor situation, for example, I give the example of you're at the airport waiting to check in but the line is not moving, there's a delay and you get more and more agitated and angry and at that moment conduct an experiment and ask yourself how would i experience this situation if i did not add any baggage of thought to it without adding any what i call unnecessary thought baggage to this situation how would i experience this moment if i let go of those thoughts that judge this moment and People actually sometimes practice that, they experiment with it, and they, wow, suddenly the a complete shift, this moment is actually fine. I'm standing here, I'm breathing, I'm looking around, there are people, interesting life forms, every human is an interesting life form, and it, it's fine, actually, unless I tell myself that it's not. So it's a disidentification from thinking and the arising of one one could call a new dimension of consciousness, which I call presence, or sometimes call it awareness. And that happened to me that night, so I woke up the next morning in a state of wonderful peace, although nothing had changed in my external circumstances. I still had very little money and lived in one little room with a little corner for the stove, and I had to share the bathroom with 10 people (laughs) so that hadn't changed and yet i was suddenly at peace but i didn't know why and later i realized why and that is because the compulsive and incessant thinking that i call the voice in the head had to a large extent subsided and so the this continuous a movement. Thinking of is a wonderful thing. I'm talking about this, the useless, destructive self-talk that had subsided. And I was actually spending long periods of time in a state of pure presence, which is just perceiving things, just looking around. The background was no longer labeling everything mentally or judging or condemning or But there was just an aware presence in the background. Is that Uh,
0: the differentiation between ego and soul? So is that narrative
1: ego? Yes. Ego, the way I uh, define it, is complete identification with a narrative. Mm. Then it turns into ego. The narrative itself, if there's some awareness there, it doesn't have to turn into ego. Because then, increasingly... You realize that you are not your thoughts. That's a wonderful liberation. If you realize you're, but and you, who are you if you are not your thoughts? If you're not your thoughts, you're the that st- alert, still presence behind your thoughts. That is a then that spiritual awakening. Mm. For many people, or quite a few people, spiritual awakening is happens the first beginning of spiritual awakening when they realize that there is a voice in their head. Mm-hmm. Because many people are so identified, there's no separation, they are the voice. Right. And so then every thought that comes into your head, you believe in it completely. It, it, you are at the mercy <laughs> of your conditioned thinking. And that's the unawakened state, We call I call it unconscious, uh, which is spiritually speaking unconscious. To be unconscious, spiritually speaking, is to be in the grip of ego, as you say, which means you're completely identified with that stream of mm-hmm. thinking.
0: And so the ego seems to be incredibly strong and seems to be almost working, working so that we don't have that epiphany that we're actually, that that's, it's only a narrative and it's not our soul and it's, it's not who we are. Do you think in kind of, a big-picture way, if there is spiritual intelligence in the universe, if there is a god. What is the purpose of ego?
1: You probably have to go back many thousands of years to when the ego first started. It is linked with the use of language. Humans began to use language. Language became conceptual thinking. And that was fine, it was a miraculous thing that ego was part of the evolution of consciousness and so uh, the whole of culture that humans could produce civilizations and cultures are due to the fact that they that thinking thinking grew in them, the ability to think developed and grew, and then came writing and so on. All wonderful developments. So it was part of the evolution. There was only one downside to it, and that gradually emerged over centuries and millennia. And the downside of thinking, because everything has everything in this world has polarities. There's always a price to pay. You have an enormous gain on one side, but you have a price to pay on the other side. So, what gradually happened as thinking became more evolved and complex, humans lost their innate ability to be rooted. In their in their being, they lost that rootedness in being that animals still have, mm-hmm. and everything in nature still has. It's it's rooted. The dog, for example, is not anxious; has doesn't have a self-image yet because the dog doesn't think, doesn't construct a mental image of who who he or she is. So humans gradually became more and more identified with thinking. So this self-identity, which is uh, the development of a a mental image of who they are rather than being who they are, they began to have a relationship with themselves. A strange thing. Animals don't have a relationship with themselves because they are just themselves.
0: Do you think materiality is what causes somebody to have, or materialism is what causes a human being to have a relationship with themselves?
1: only to the extent that humans derive part of their sense of identity from material things, then it becomes part of your ego, which of course is very common. Yeah. The first thing you derive your identity from, of course, is probably your own body. One tends to say, that's me. And then perhaps the thing that you put on your body is your clothes, give you your sense of identity. The next thing is things. Even a little child learns that already my toy so you have there's a link with the thing is not just a thing that you like there's nothing wrong with that there's more to it there comes an identification with the thing so it it adds something to your sense of who you are ultimately it's unreal and it's a fiction but every child has to go through that you cannot tell a child well, this isn't your toy really because that's just ego, so just don't say it's my toy. The child has to go through that. And the child experiences the first time the suffering that the ego produces when somebody takes away the toy, even if just for one minute, the child gets very unhappy and starts crying. And Although it'll probably lose interest in the toy 10 minutes later, but at that moment, something that the the child's developing sense of self has become injured, has lost a part of itself and that's already the developing ego Mm -hmm. and then it grows and grows. But ultimately, ego is really thought forms because Mm -hmm. even possessions, material possessions, yes, one could say yes, if you have a nice car, you identify with the car, Your car perhaps makes you feel superior to others whose car is not so nice. But ultimately, you're not really identified with the external position. You're identified with the thought of my car. So it's the thought form of my car that gives you your sense of self. So ultimately, all identification and ego is identification with thought forms. Mm-hmm. So, your identity becomes, you, you look for an identity in your thoughts, in your thought forms. And ego is always looking for, not only looking for a sense of reassurance that I exist, please give me attention, please tell me that I exist. It always seeks some kind of superiority. It, it always compares. It's this the egoic identity always seeks to it compares itself to others. How do I relate? How do I rate in relation to this person and that person? And it either feels inferior or superior to others. It's quite normal when one is in ego, and makes life very unpleasant. You can't ever really relax into yeah. your own self, into your deeper self.
0: I mean, that that seems to be just a recipe for suffering, you know, to be yes. constantly judging yourself against other people. Yes,
1: and and if you can't be better than others in either good looks or strengths or material possessions or knowledge or certain abilities, if you have none of these, you can still feel superior, for example, by seeing yourself as a victim of other people, which mm-hmm. is also very strong self-image and a victim identity is as strong an ego as an identity of somebody who feels superior to most people. And
0: sometimes it seems like that is the two sides of one coin. That's
1: right, exactly. And so a victim is still superior to most people because the victim immediately has in their mind moral superiority right.
0: they're right they have righteousness yes. around Yes. Right.
1: So, but it's all it's an unconscious process so they don't know that they're doing this but identity is so important for human beings and this cannot be denied i would say after food and shelter the next thing that people are concerned with is their, their sense of self.
0: How am I perceived? Yes. How do I perceive uh, uh, myself? How do I
1: perceive myself? Mm-hmm. And so all this is unconscious living, which is still unfortunately normal. Yeah. But there is a possibility, which all the ancient teachings have pointed to, of spiritual awakening out of that unconsciousness. So that there's a shift in your sense of who you are. So you're no longer looking for yourself in the movement of thought and the emotions that go with thoughts because you realize there's a deeper being there that is aware, that can be aware of thoughts. And that happens in a moment when there's a cessation in the stream of thinking. Sometimes you need to shock for a moment stop thinking. Mm -hmm. Some people engage in dangerous activities, like mountain climbing, because it stops your mind. You can't be thinking. You have to be absolutely present. And so in meditation, of course, what people strive to achieve is the state of inner stillness to still the mind. So that has its place, too. So... There's is that
0: what you do? Do you meditate to practice? Um,
1: I don't have a very much of a elaborate meditation practice. I I don't practice myself, because daily life is the practice. It's a yeah. just being present with what you do. And but I sometimes teach body awareness, which is directing your attention into the inner energy field of your body. Some people don't know what I'm talking about so if they don't know what I'm talking about I say hold your hand up and close your eyes, don't touch anything, don't move your hand and then ask yourself the question, how can I know whether my hand is still there? (laughs) Don't look at it and don't say well it's still there because I remember it, I saw it a minute a second ago, no. How can you know without touching that the hand is still there? And that question directs your attention into the into your hand and suddenly you can feel a, perhaps a slight tingling there. You realize it's alive. Oh, it's doing
0: it right now, I feel. Right.
1: That's the beginning of body awareness.
0: That's a very interesting tact, actually, because I try to meditate. I can't say I do it every day because sometimes kids or life or whatever gets in the way. But... I've practiced a a bunch of different kinds of meditations over the time, and, and I think the ones that enlist breathing, which is sort of what you're talking about, I mean, that's body awareness, right? Yes,
1: yes. Breathing also is somehow connected to body awareness, too, because with the breath meditation, which is one of the oldest forms of meditation, probably taught by the Buddha, when you focus attention on your breath... The, uh, you focus the attention on the uh, as the air moves into the body, you breathe in through your nose. The important part is your attention, that the attention follows the breath into the body. I sometimes say the breath goes into the chest, but imagine that you, the air goes into the belly, that's even better if your attention moves into your abdomen. And then it's there for a second, and then you breathe out again. So you follow the breath, going through your nostrils, into the chest, and then into the abdomen. Hold it there for one or two seconds, and then breathe out again. And during during this time, you will notice you cannot think and be aware of your breathing at the same time. And that is why this meditation is so useful. Uh, because you can't be aware of your breath and think at the same time. That is true, actually. (laughs) And if you do think, you're not aware of your breath anymore. Right. And this is why the Buddha highly recommended it, and it's still practiced in Anapanasati Yoga, the meditation of breath awareness. And I often recommend, if you don't, not everybody is good at meditation as such, I recommend mini meditations during your day
0: Ooh, and, this sounds uh,
1: good. <laughs> it's so easy. A mini meditation does not, have, does not have to be more than one conscious breath, which is I want in and out. And one conscious breath would, might take about, depending on the, how deeply you breathe, uh, maybe six, seven to ten seconds. Say it's ten seconds. So you stop and you go. And I recommend that to do whenever you're waiting for something at the elevator or in the elevator, or you're waiting to talk to someone or whatever it is, instead of getting out your phone and looking at it for no reason whatsoever, you become aware of your breath, take a mini meditation, and take one or perhaps even two conscious breaths. If you do that many times during the day, that is probably more powerful and more useful than setting aside ten minutes or fifteen minutes for meditation, because if you set aside that it creates a compartment in your life and that you're you calling
0: yourself out of yeah, your life, right?
1: Whereas your life really needs to be interspersed with that presence so that it can flow even into your activities. and so and then to realize that it is actually possible for you, to be conscious and not thinking is an amazing thing.
0: I don't I don't think I've ever done that before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you probably have, but without knowing it, without fully realizing what was going on. Right. I don't know. If you can do a conscious breath, then you would realize that during that time you're not thinking. Another thing I recommend is sometimes to be acutely aware of sense perceptions, whether it's visual or auditory or tactile, whatever it is, to, when you look at something, to really look and stay with something just for half a minute or minute, whether it's an object or even better, a natural thing like a plant or a tree or the sky, give something your complete at- attention, take it all in, let go of any kind of mental labeling so you don't call it anything. So when you look at a tree, You're just there as an alert presence, and you're perceiving the tree against the background of an alert presence. You're very still, but you're not going towards sleep. Sometimes people, often people associate stopping thinking with going to sleep. Of course, I call that falling below thinking. But this, when you stop thinking in this way, you rise above thinking, and and that is the spiritual awakening, And as you realize that is possible for you, that is the rising of a new dimension of consciousness in you, that is spiritual awakening. And that then becomes, your sense of identity becomes that, that silent presence, which is consciousness itself. And that is, then you become free of ego. Of course, you still remember your past, you remember all those things that make up your person, your personality, that's fine. But you're not completely identified with that anymore. You don't need it for your sense of self. You can appre- So, you, for example, you can appreciate a beautiful object. Why not? If you have a beautiful object in your home or, or, you, or it might not even be yours, you appreciate it, you honor it, and it's fine. But you no longer derive your sense of self from it because you don't need it for your sense of self anymore. Because your sense of self is now derived from the from consciousness, and this changes the way in which you relate to other humans. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at another human being, you see first of all their physical, the body and the outer appearance, and then you see that you become aware of their personality, which is the conditioned self. Everybody has a personality. I say has, not is, but so. But if you are able to be still while you are looking at someone or listening to someone, so you're not creating a, a conceptual self or the other person, and then you look, then you can you can kind of sense a deeper dimension in the other human being where they are also, they are in essence consciousness, just like you. Their essence is consciousness, just as your essence is consciousness. There's there's a conditioned entity, and then there's the unconditioned being. And then you begin to relate in other humans more to their being than to their conditioned entity. This means there's an outflow of love and goodwill towards the other. You feel a connectedness that you didn't feel before. That's where real love comes from. When you, I define love as the recognition of the other as ultimately yourself. And that is,
0: and you can't do that if you're holding on to your ego, right? No, that's but right. But it's difficult. I mean, it's really, I think the ego seems to have a great deal of vigor in convincing us that it's the real story and causes us a lot of suffering. I once heard this quote, I think it was from a physicist, who said something like, you know, our ego will do everything to convince you that it is real, including having you jump out of a window.
1: Yes, yes, very true. In some cases, suicide is the last triumph of the ego to make the world wrong. And myself, right, right. it's a... And also, uh, there's not only the personal ego, there's also the collective ego, or the collective ego of nations or tribes or religions and if the personal ego is the source of suffering and dysfunctional in many ways the collective ego is even more insane than the personal ego.
0: I remember reading once you talked about like the collective I think ego of a country or even or an office building you know sometimes you walk in and you feel a certain heaviness or...
1: Yes, yes you can, if you're sensitive you can feel if, even if you, you arrive in another country you can sometimes immediately feel the energy field of that country which is the, the collective. The pain body is what I call pain body is an accumulation of, of old emotion in a human being from childhood perhaps even before childhood or past lifetimes but if you don't want to go there that's fine childhood is enough. This is goop, we can talk about anything. Uh, Childhood, every child suffers, some to a greater or lesser degree. Being a child in this world is not easy and so p- then emotional suffering leaves behind residues in And humans. we don't
0: teach our children oh,
1: exactly. how
0: to metabolize and
1: exactly. get emotion the, the, out the of the, the body. M- the most important things that they should teach at school is to be aware of your emotions and how to deal with your own emotions instead of being your emotion to be aware of your mind, but this would be the number one subject at school, because that is learning how to live. But maybe one day that will I know there are I know teachers who are introducing that privately into the curriculum.
0: I think it's very important. Yes. And now let's take a short break. A few years ago, we debuted our first wellness summit in Goop Health. Since then, we've hosted eight summits in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Vancouver, and London. We've also thought about how we can bring similar high-touch experiences to other places and groups of people who might be interested in exploring physical, mental, and spiritual well-being through a new lens. We have a lot in the works for 2020, but there's one partnership in particular that we're very excited about and which I think might surprise you. This August we'll be taking our first foray into cruising with a bespoke experience that we're calling Goop at Sea. It's a partnership with Celebrity Cruises, which is a brand that is incorporating wellness into modern travel in a way that's very compelling to us. Goop at Sea is part of an 11-day sailing trip on Celebrity Apex, which travels from Barcelona to France and through the Italian Riviera. Midway through the cruise, we'll be taking an intimate group of guests through a day of wellness. I'll be there for a conversation with my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, who you likely know from this podcast. And a few practitioners we work with will lead guests through workshops for the mind, body and soul. To learn more about Celebrity Cruises and the Goop at Sea experience, head to celebritycruises.com slash goop at sea. okay, let's get back to the conversation. And this is like a core tenet of my life, something that you wrote. It's really a teaching, which is what, what you resist persists. Yes. And I want to ask you to define that a little bit. You know, it's something like in my parenting with my kids yesterday, I was with my son and he had become angry about something. And so he said why do you think i'm angry cuz he kept saying i don't know why and i said well if you don't know why it's usually you know sadness that you've pushed down you know that you're sublimating and i said you know so we got into then what happened and what had made him sad and i said you know why don't you talk about it with me you know if something happens and he says because then i have to feel it all over again nah. which i thought was really profound for a 13 year old to have that kind of insight And I felt like, gosh, I need to help him better have the tools to not be resistant of those feelings, and that if you invite them to come and have a seat at the table with you, then they're quicker to be diffused. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, yes. I often recommend that, because many children have these pain body episodes when the the residues of emotional pain, I I regard it as almost a little entity that lives in you, the pain body, it's an emotional energy field, it's emotion, raw emotion. It lives in you but it has a dormant state and it has an active state. Sometimes you don't even know it's there and then something triggers it Mm. and it wants to be triggered because it needs to take in more food of through drama or through destructive negative thinking it right. takes it takes some food through your uh, negative thoughts feeds feed the emotion of the pain body or drama in a relationship feeds the emotion of the pain body so periodically the pain body rises up looking for food to take in wanting somebody t- to react to give an emotion uh, negative emotional react it loves the drama And children have it too, so they have a temper tantrum, whatever it is. And I recommend that people, not during the temper tantrum, or if that's what it is, but afterwards say, oh, do you remember what happened yesterday when this thing happened, when you threw yourself on the floor, or whatever they do? Do you remember that? Wasn't that strange? What was that? What What was that thing that came up in you? Does it have a name? Can you draw it on a paper? What what would it look like? Then they become aware of this energy field. Mm -hmm. You'd never say, oh, you don't go there. You shouldn't feel that you can actually encourage them to p- be aware of it but the best times to do that is when they're not in the grip of it and then next time it happens again you can say oh there it is again in the middle of it they may not want to hear it because at that moment they are the pain body but there'll be a remnant of awareness in the, at the back of their consciousness mm-hmm. and, and then there's a growing awareness gradually and then the pain body episodes tend to be less intense and uh, happened with uh, longer uh, intervals so it's it's important to acknowledge it and to see it for what it is the awareness is the key mm. so that it doesn't take you over you can you, then you know that w- what it is and then
0: how do we teach them to contextualize pain so that they understand that it's a normal human emotion and like how do you teach them that you know, there's a context for all emotions, especially the harder ones, and how to, to get through them.
1: Well, it's first the acceptance of whatever is, whatever, mon- and this applies to children and adults. Perhaps one, th- one of the most important spiritual practices is not to resist your experience of this moment, not to resist the way in which you're experiencing this moment, because that is your reality, and so gradually a child can learn that also. What is your reality at this moment? What do you feel? B- uh, is there justification for this pain that you feel? Mm-hmm. Well, the child might say, well, I'm feeling this because this he uh, I got bullied by this this boy. And so, yes, there is an external justification for what I feel, and then, First, you look at the feeling, and then you look at what action could you take so that next time it doesn't happen. But then there's an- another aspect to it. Very often, the painful feelings, emotions, uh, are not generated by external events. They often can, both in children and adults, they are generated by certain types of thinking mm-hmm. in your mind. So a lot of suffering that humans endure is not created by events, but by dysfunctional thinking. For example, what we call worry, which is, can be very, very destructive. People, people, some people worry a large part of the day and they wake up in the middle of the night and can't stop thinking. They're worrying. The, the emotion it produces is anxiety. And it's a dreadful thing to live with. And worry is, dysfunctional use of the mind and you cannot, you think you cannot stop it. And there's also, the mind is telling thee that you need to continue to worry because somehow the mind seems to be saying uh, your life will fall apart if you don't worry. The opposite is true. So if you realize that you don't want this worry, first you need to recognize that it's futile. Thinking about a problem is good, but there's a possibility of taking action. So you set aside a time, say, what's okay, this is the problem, this is the situation, what action can I take? That's constructive thinking. But this continuous worrying, with no possibility of action at that moment, is very toxic and destructive. So the, the first thing is to realize it's it's not only futile, it's also destructive and I don't want it anymore. That's the first step. Now, even even knowing that it doesn't immediately go away because there's a momentum, huge momentum behind it. But once you know that it's futile, it's destructive and you don't want it anymore, you can take the next step when it happens, let's say for many people night times are very, very unpleasant because it happened in my 20s, it happened to me a lot would wake up in the middle of night in a stale, and, and, Terrible anxiety and fear. And the, the mind was racing and racing in dreadful state. Okay, it's futile. I recognize it's futile. I don't want it. And how can I get out of it? And then here we come back to what we talked about earlier. You choose to direct your attention into the body or you choose to direct your attention to your breathing, which then connects you with the inner body. And don't believe your mind when it tells you, no, I can't do it. That's just another destructive thought. <laughs> or sometimes during the day when coming back, we were talking about mini-meditations, the mind might sometimes say, I haven't got time for this now. This is a lie, so don't believe the mind when it says, I haven't got time for this now. There's nobody, unless it's an emergency situation, there's nobody who does not have time for a 10-second mini-meditation. <laughs> it's just you're fooling yourself if you're saying, yeah, I don't have time. And so here also at night time then, by choice, you take attention away from thinking, consciousness then moves into the body, and you begin to actually, sometimes people say, the five minutes after being completely trapped in this negative mental emotional energy field, they direct their attention into the body, and suddenly it feels good to be lying in bed there, because the mind has stopped, and you feel the an intense aliveness pervading your entire body. The aliveness is in your, in your legs, it's in your hand, it's in your entire body and you feel yourself breathing and this moment is good and beautiful because it's the present moment. You're no longer leaving the present moment and in that present moment, there is no problem. And that is another amazing realization I often recommend when people feel burdened with problems. I mean, there's no human being who does not have problems, which in other words for problems are challenges, which I prefer the word challenges. There's no human being because life is difficult. Life is, there's no doubt, in one way or another, with little short interludes when life leaves you alone for a little while, but otherwise... You get one challenge after another. That's part of being alive here. And it's meant to be like that because we wouldn't even evolve as conscious beings if we were not challenged. We evolve only because we are being challenged. Right. So it's a good thing to be challenged. Just at the, Focus just for a moment on this moment because after all, that's all there ever is. There is nothing else. You, you never experience life as anything other than this moment. Well, that's an interesting realization, isn't it? Your life is never anything other than this moment, your entire life unfolds as this moment. Past and future, you can only experience that when you think about them in this moment. <laughs> you don't have a problem. Not at this moment, maybe in five minutes time, yes, but not now. Right. That's an amazing realization.
0: And then if in five minutes you do have a challenge in the moment, you don't resist the feeling. You
1: don't resist the feeling and you face it and you see if it's something, if it requires action, then you're alert, you look at the situation. And and this alertness is key because that alertness is part of the awareness, the unconditioned consciousness. It also implies that for a moment you become still and then there's this, then you look, maybe not necessarily visually, I'm just using look, to represent the act of attention, giving something attention. If you give your complete attention to something, you're, at this moment you're not thinking about it, you're just looking, and this means you're accessing a deeper or higher intelligence that is more than your conditioned mind. And this is so vitally important to, to be able to, for, just for a moment, become still, alert, give something attention, and then perhaps a thought will come in and tell you, oh, now now I know what to do. Or you do it spontaneously and, and without even thinking about it. So that's, a, that's a, the, the incredible importance of not overlooking the, the primacy of the present moment. That's why I call it the power of now because most humans live as if past and future, and especially future, were more important than this moment. This is unconsciously, most humans live like this. And of course, yes, you need to have certain plans for the future to arrange things. All this on a practical level is necessary. And of course, yes, you remember your past. That's all fine. But to continuously treat the present moment as if it were no more than a stepping stone to the next moment, or to treat the present moment almost, and many people do that as if they were an enemy, as if it were an enemy, the present. So if we can learn to honor the present moment much more, to, and then realize that it's, there's so much beauty and wonder in the present moment, and to, to to appreciate what, what there is, to breathe, to look, to look out of the window at the sky for a moment, become still, otherwise you miss your whole life. If you only live always for the next moment, whether the next moment is the weekend, or when I get off work, or when I achieve this or that, if you always live for another moment, you never really live. And this is, there are people who reach the age of retirement and beyond and they have a feeling they haven't started to live yet because they always live live for some some next moment that never comes because the next moment when it does come, it's the present moment and and habitually you don't appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It's a dreadful way to live, it's quite insane. But most of our civilization still, to a large extent, lives in that way.
0: Do you believe in God?
1: I believe yeah not perhaps in the traditional sense of imagining that there is a controlling entity somewhere right. not that kind of God but I do believe and I would I'd almost say that I I know because I can feel it I can sense it that underneath the world that of phenomena that we perceive there is a vast, energy field, intelligent energy field, that is the organizing principle behind all life forms that arise and subside. In other words, there is a vast intelligence underlying the sense-perceived universe. So the sense-perceived universe is only the surface manifestation of something much deeper. And this vast intelligence, which I would call consciousness, which you can sense in yourself. This vast intelligence, the way I see it, is an emanation of the source of all life, which one could call God. And God does not reside anywhere in space or time, because God is the transcendent reality behind all life. The analogy I sometimes use is the sun. The sun emanates light for millions and millions of years. Is it just gives and gives and gives, and it's the, the light from the sun is the, gives life to everything. And this is a good analogy for God, except that God does not have a physical existence in space or time. But God is like the source that emanates into this dimension. So you are, the consciousness that is in you is the light of God, which means you are eternally and forever co- connected to god the source of all life you are not separate from it and if you can sense that in yourself that is then your whole life purpose is fulfilled because then through you the universe has recognized itself and it, its its origin so it's just wonderful
0: and that is the that is the purpose of life
1: the purpose of life is a flowering of consciousness. Mm-hmm. The purpose of life is for us to to become more conscious human beings, so one could say there are two purposes. You have a personal purpose that varies from person to person. So you have a job or you have an activity or whatever it is, a personal purpose. But you also have a universal purpose that is aligned with the universe and that is to become a more conscious human being so that this consciousness then merges with a personal purpose and flows into everything you do. So it affects your interactions with other human beings. So you become a more loving human being. It affects your interactions with all life forms. And so the important thing is to realize even if you are 90 years old, you might not have too might not have too much of a personal purpose left because well what else what is there to do, but even then the universal purpose of consciousness still remains because for that you don't need you don't really need more time to be conscious you can only be conscious in the present moment. Uh, Cause in miracles I don't know if you know that book has a. A line that says it has taken time to misguide you so completely, but it takes no time at all to be who you are, which is consciousness. That's beautiful. It takes no time to be who you are, and this realization. The ancient Greeks said, "Know thyself." The dictum probably originates with Pythagoras, ancient Greek philosopher, five hundred B.C. Know thyself, which, and once you know yourself, then you have fulfilled the purpose of human life here. And it no longer matters how much younger, longer you live here with as a body and with a body.
0: When you know yourself, are you helping to raise the collective consciousness? Oh yes,
1: exactly. Not only through your interactions with other human beings, even if you did not interact, although most people will interact with other human beings, but even if you were a hermit and you lived in isolation, even then you would affect the totality of human consciousness because the totality of human consciousness is one, it's connected. Underneath the world of phenomena, we are all connected. Mm -hmm. So,
0: what do you think the purpose of the challenges are that we go through?
1: Well, the challenges are uh let's give the, there's an example. I like watching movies, and of course, that is your field of expertise. It used to be. <laughs> now, if you look at almost any movie, and if you wanted to bring down the plot of the movie, to, to explained in the absolutely most simple terms, for a movie to be interesting to people, you have to say, as close to the beginning of the movie in the unfolding uh, action something goes wrong right if nothing goes wrong people in the movie theater will either fall asleep or they will leave <laughs> so you the it is vital that something goes wrong and if something goes wrong a character encounters a an accident, a difficulty, or difficult people, or, or there's a crime—all kinds of things go wrong. Relationship problems, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. something must go wrong. Now, in a bad movie, what goes wrong?
0: I've been in some of those. No, too. I don't think so.
1: <laughs> I only remember good ones. <laughs> in a in a bad movie, the. That which goes wrong is eventually resolved on a purely external level, so the bad guy finally is killed, and that resolves it. But in a good movie, they, but this also applies to literature, there's a development in the in the characters, the protagonist or whoever, by facing the challenges of life, they change. I, they might develop strengths that they didn't have before, inner resources they didn't have before. They may lose their unpleasant and toxic ego due to suffering. The challenges change the the character in the movie and then then it becomes something worth watching because as you identify with the character, there's a little bit of change in you too because for, for a little while you identify with this character. And this is how a movie can actually contribute to your own consciousness, make you a bit more conscious and change your life, if only to a small degree. Can be, literature does that too. And so, now we can see humans do not evolve unless they are challenged. And not only humans, even life forms. Life is difficult for all life forms. Life is precarious for all life forms. Even when, when a seed sprouts it needs to push through the soil and that's hard sometimes gardeners actually put more soil on top so that it gets even stronger by having to push to to to, to a triple layer of soil and then the seed gets even stronger and then it has to face the elements and has to this cold and then there's the nighttime and there's the wind it it has to generate more energy and humans by facing problems or challenges have to generate ultimately more consciousness in order to face those challenges how do i know that i know that because I look at my own life and it's the same with everyone if i not if i had not faced the challenges in my life i would not have evolved when i was 20 i would have said wouldn't it be wonderful if i had a trust fund if I didn't have to worry about making money and be concerned about my place in the world, just, wouldn't it be great if, if I belonged to the aristocracy and I already would have high status just by be, being born into this position. And I met some people at university eventually who were like that, but they were all unhappy, but that's another story. <laughs> so, but I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful and of course, if that had been the case, it would have been the worst thing. It could have happened to me. I would not have evolved unless something else would have happened. Of course, eventually something else would have happened, even if I had had a trust fund and an aristocratic title or whatever it is. <laughs> but not to be challenged would be the... Let's imagine that there's somebody who is born into this position and is not challenged by anything until he or she is 30 and 40 years old. And that... What would the result be? The result would be that this person would be completely superficial, to, totally trapped in their ego, and ultimately the fact that this person has not been challenged would would become the, their greatest challenge, because life would become impossibly difficult for that human being. So it's through challenges that we grow and become stronger and ultimately more conscious. and. This is good to know because often people believe that when life is challenging, something has gone wrong. This shouldn't be happening. Life should leave me alone. Well, it won't. And the important thing to realize is the world here, or life or the world isn't here to make you happy because it doesn't seem to be doing it. So if the world were here to make me happy, then there would be something fundamentally wrong with the world because it's not making me happy. So that assumption may be erroneous. And in fact, it is erroneous. The world is not here to make you happy. It's here to make you conscious. And when you're conscious, you achieve something that we could call happiness, but it's actually deeper than happiness. It transcends the polarities of happiness and unhappiness. There is something that in the Bible somewhere in the New Testament is called the peace that passes all understanding. There's a deep inner peace then, which is not a dead kind of peace, but an alive peace. And that is what you realize when you transcend your egoic self and when you become present. And then you realize, wow, these challenges actually, were vital for my awakening. And even when you're awakened or awakening, you continue to encounter challenges. Doesn't mean the universe ever says, okay, now you've had enough. No, this, you, can, you can always go deeper. And every challenge takes you deeper. Humans would, would go to sleep without challenges, so to speak. Animals, look at animals, how alert they are. Birds, the alertness in birds, when they look around with their, their eyes, they they, they look, look, little even little squirrels and the deer in the forest—they're all so alert. Why are they alert? Because if they're not alert, they'll get eaten or killed by another animal. So, if if they if they were not the, if their life were not under continuous threat, if their life were not precarious, they would probably lie there and uh, have not developed even. They would probably wouldn't even be able to run or they are alert because life is challenging. And this is how animals, even animals, grow in consciousness. All life forms on the planet gradually grow in consciousness. Well, there's a strange saying in Buddhism, it says that uh, eventually every blade of grass will also become enlightened. But what that means is all life forms are part of the evolving consciousness.
0: Thanks for listening to my chat with the incredibly wise Eckhart Tolle. I love the way Eckhart contextualized struggle, even when you're awakened or awakening, as Eckhart put it. You continue to encounter challenges, and it's through each challenge that we have the chance to become a little stronger and ultimately a little more conscious, which Eckhart would say is the real purpose of us being here. If you haven't read Eckhart's books yet, I highly recommend A New Earth and The Power of Now. And he also has some amazing online courses, including one called Conscious Manifestation, which you can learn more about at goop.com slash the podcast. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.